So let me read Colossians 2, verses 8 to 23. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay. So, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a book called, well, it's a short book, called The Curious Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you watch Abbott Costello or Bugs Bunny, you've seen parts of this. Um, If you don't know either of those two things, you're very young. And... In this book, here's what goes on. Dr. Jekyll realizes something. He's a doctor, scientist, and he realizes he hates that he's so driven by his evil desires. And so he he designs to create a, a potion, a serum, that if taken, will separate the two halves of him. Because he's under the impression, like most Canadians are, that we're generally good people. And if I could just figure a way of getting rid of that little annoying problem of evil that comes to me from outside, right? It's this nagging thing. And if I could just get the right potion, I could separate the two, he says. And he eventually says, you know, the goal was if I could separate my two natures, then the good nature, the noble nature, could go on about its way, doing good in the world. And then that evil nature could go on being miserable and just leave me alone, right? And this is the goal. But as he is researching, he comes to a conclusion and he says, the problem is this. He realized, and I quote, I am radically both. Meaning, uh, Jekyll realizes as he's studying, it's not that simple. You are not a good person with evil that bothers you from the outside, as the world seems to think. Even Louis Stevenson, even Jekyll realized, no, I'm radically both. The, The evil is in me, so intertwined that I can't undo it. And the story is all about how he accomplishes what he thinks is good by separating the two, and it ends up being a disaster. There's a spoiler for you. Um, So what he's talking about in that book is actually exactly what Paul does here. Paul here says, 
what Jack, well, of course, he doesn't know Robert Louis Stevenson, but he, what in effect he's saying is what Jekyll was attempting to do, God has accomplished in Christ. To be rid of the sinful nature, to be free from it. Because remember, Jekyll realized, I can't extract the evil from me. It's just there. It's part of me. It's so intertwined, I can't escape it. And what Paul is saying is, no, in Christ, the evil nature has been dealt with. And he goes on now, and he's going to not just explain that there it has been dealt with, but how and the implications of it in our lives, in the lives of the Colossians as well. And so he speaks of a, a number of things, but he's gonna, he, first he starts by warning. He offers a warning. Then he talks about the safety they have. And then, lastly, he talks about um, the freedom they have. Okay, so we're going to go in the order the passage comes to us, and we're going to see this is what he does and why he does it in this way. Remember, he's speaking to a young church, and he wants them to realize, hey, there's a lot of things out there that are going to try to enslave you again. There's a lot of bondsmen. There's this bondage out there. And a lot of these stories, remember last week we talked about stories. There's a lot of rival gospels, which are no gospel at all. There's a lot of these stories that tell you how the world is and who you are in it. And all of them are lies, unless it's Christ's story. And so he's, this is what he's doing here. He's showing them, he's warning them about those stories. He's showing them the safety they have in the midst of them. And then he explains, hey, here's the freedom you have against two specific stories that they heard, and which we hear all the time. Okay? So first, the warning. Um, he opens, look how he opens this whole passage in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it's very simple. Don't be taken captive. That word captive is the word that is used usually uh, to talk about kidnapping someone and bringing them into slavery. It's the word in the Greek Old Testament used to describe what happens to Joseph. So here we have Paul saying, don't be taken captive. And what you're in danger of being taken captive of are these stories that are circulating in the world, in the culture, today in the media. And those stories are ones that are generally found, bound, or founded upon human tradition and what he calls elemental spirits. And what he means by that, I mean, it's the word stoicheia, which if you were here on Tuesday morning, you know we talked a lot about it. I don't have time to dive into the etymology of the word. But I can say generally it probably means the local gods, all the other religions that are circulating at the time. Okay? So he's saying there's stories you're going to hear that are all about, they're all just human stuff. And in a nutshell, they're not of Christ. That's the key. They're according to something else, not according to Christ. And so avoid those entirely, if possible. And what's interesting about this passage, in the, this verse, and how it leads us to the rest, is look how he starts. See to it that no one takes you captive. There's an assumption in that. In assuming that you can be taken captive, it means you are free. Because if you weren't free, you couldn't, he couldn't speak of you being taken captive. So the question he's now going to talk about from here on is, how exactly have you been made free? Because you're a free agent. You're good. You're, you've been cut, set free from these lies. But you continue to go back to them. So here's, you need to know how safe you actually are from these lies. Because they're very powerful. So it's important you know that you, are, you have been set free from all of these things. And that's what he then goes on. So that's easy. Point one was quick. Now point two is now he talks about the safety. And here's verses 9 to 15. That second chunk. Okay? He talks about the safety they have. And look how again he starts. Verse 8 is, don't be deceived. And he starts at verse 9 with the word for, which means because. So don't be deceived because, and then he let, launches into a tirade of who Christ is and what he has done. 
So don't be deceived because you're free, is very quickly what he is saying. But before he gets there, he see, ultimately he says, don't be, don't be held captive by these lies because you have been made alive in Christ. Now, again, think of the assumption. If he says you've been made alive, what it, the assumption is you were dead before. And this is not contentious. It shouldn't be contentious anywhere amongst Christians or amongst the world, but it is at times. When he says clearly um, that you are, where was it here? You were dead in your trespasses in verse 13. He's saying, listen, you were dead. You were completely dead. You had no hope. And while you were dead, you were a slave. You were a slave to your sinful nature. But you were no longer that way. See, um, and the, the assumption of the Bible, which could be offensive today, is this. You are incapable of choosing anything good. And by good, you have to understand what I mean biblically. I'm not talking about giving money to a charity or helping an old lady across the street. But you're incapable of doing anything that God will say, yeah, that, that counts as a check mark for you. Because you're so bound up in your sin, says Paul. You're so caught up in your sinful nature that you are perfectly free to make any decision you want. Free will is real. However, you're so bound, you're so bound by sin that you in your freedom will always only choose sin. You'll never choose God. Perfect freedom? Yes. As far as can be. But let's face it, you're never free in this world. No one's free. But as free as we are, we're all bound by something. Human tradition, opinions, anger, jealousy, whatever it is. And Paul says, you're all dead in your trespasses. Right? And that's an important starting point. Because what he's saying is every human is the walking dead. If you, and by this is what he means. If you are insensible to the, to the God's work in the world, if you don't realize it's God at work in the world, if you don't worship and honor that God who is at work in the world, you may have life, you may be getting married, having babies and working and doing many good things, but you're dead because you don't acknowledge the basic truth that God is real and God is at work in your heart and you owe him something. And so you're dead in your trespasses, says Paul. But something has happened, right? You've been made alive in Christ. And this deadness, though, and the reason here Paul then starts talking about circumcision is because he's a Jew and he's hearkening back to the Old Testament. And he says in the Old Testament, there was language for this. The language for somebody who looked okay but really wasn't okay with God was that you were not circumcised in your heart. This happens repeatedly in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 16, 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 36. All of them speak about our not being right with God. And in fact, in Jeremiah 9, it's pretty harsh. He says, Israel, you all might be circumcised, but I'm going to crush you because most of you are not circumcised in your heart. And Paul points to this because, and you'll see in your community groups, you can go much deeper about the connection between circumcision and baptism. Won't go into that today. What he's saying is, you know, you are so lost in your sin that something had to happen, something radical had to happen. Because, um, the, you know, circumcision was this way. You know why you got circumcised in the Old Testament was it's a sign of belonging to the family. Isaac is born and Abraham circumcises him. And as he is circumcised, there's nothing special done, says God. You know, it just means it's a sign. That baby is now an heir to these promises. But one day, Isaac is going to have to grow up. And he, when he becomes a man, will have to lay hold of those promises by faith. And so God says, the circumcision is important. It shows that you're part of the family. It's a sign. But it is not faith. 
Faith is required after. In the same way, you may have a wedding ring on. That's a sign of marriage. But fidelity, commitment, love, all of those things is evidence that you're actually married. And so Paul, and in the Old Testament, God continually identifies. There's this group of people who think they're mine, but then there's these ones who are actually mine by faith. And so Paul then says, in that same language, now he drags it into the New Testament as he speaks about it, and he says, baptism now is this sort of thing. When people get baptized, you may be baptized. Most of us probably were baptized. But that sign may not be proof that you're actually saved, right? May not be. And so what, he, what he's saying here is this, that we are sinners. We're all uncircumcised by heart, but something happens in the Old Testament. God says you can't get it right. You continue to be lost. And so I'm going to have to circumcise your heart somehow because you can't do it yourselves. And so he starts making these promises in the Old Testament that one day he's going to come and do it. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 specifically talk about that. And then what Paul is saying, this has happened now. And what happened was Christ. That when Christ came, he exacted this. He, cre- he made it so that you can now be free from that sin that kept you away from God. That thing that in you um, made it so that you would never obey him. You could never get right with him. You never seemed to choose him even when you wanted to. Um, all of that, he says, then comes Christ into this picture. And he uses brilliant little language, right? Paul says in verses 13 to 15, You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Here's how. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He said it, he, uh, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, notice what he says. First, when he talks about this record, this record is a, is a Greek word that means IOU. Okay, it's an IOU. And what he's saying, it's, it's quite profound. Paul is, again, brilliant here. He's saying, every human, regardless of whether you believe it or not, or accept it or not, every human, by nature of being a creature made by God, has an unknown, well, hopefully we should know, and I'm telling you, an IOU with God. You effectively have signed an IOU that says, I, as creature, owe you obedience and worship. That's an IOU. That's the record that he's speaking of. He says, but it now stands as a condemnation, as, pro- as evidence against our faithfulness, because we sign this IOU as being humans. We owe this to God, but he says we failed. And because you have failed, you now stand dead before God in your sin. You're dead. And then how God in Christ comes and says, I'm going to fix it though. And he uses the word here, he says God comes and he cancels the record of that debt. Now the word cancel is good, but this is where I like the old King James a little better, because the King James captures a little bit more of what Paul as a Jew is saying. It's the word blot out or wipe out. And the reason that's important is in the ancient world, they had ink. And when you wrote on parchment or on skin, animal skins, the ink didn't have acid in it like ours does. So the ink wouldn't bite into the paper and stay there permanently. So if you wanted to change something, you'd get a damp rag and you would blot out. So when, Paul, when, the, when the psalmist are saying, blot out my transgression, they're saying, Lord, take that record and wipe it clean. So Paul's saying, this is what has happened. Your sins have been forgiven in Christ. But lest we think, some people will say, well, then is there no payment? See, when he says cancel, that's why I don't like the word cancel, the canceling assumes there's no payment. And that's not true. See, biblically, forgiveness in the Bible and real forgiveness anywhere always includes payment. 
Sin can never, I know as a skeptic, I used to think, and many people think, hey, um, if he's God, why does he need blood? In fact, I was reading a guy who claims to be a Christian this week who was saying this exact thing. He's in a liberal denomination that thinks, why does God need blood? He doesn't need blood. That's archaic. That's primitive. It's symbolism. It's not true. I'm sorry. The man doesn't know what he's talking about. Because forgiveness always requires payment. It can't simply be a canceling. If Visa comes to us and says, I'm going to cancel all of your debt that you have with us, do you think the debt disappears? No. Visa eats the debt. Somebody must absorb the wrong, right? It can't go, if you, and I used this before, if you break my iPhone, I can forgive you, but make no mistake, I have to pay for that iPhone. Somebody has to pay for it. And so what God is saying here is not that he cancels it in the sense that, oh, just, I'll pretend like it never happened. No, because right after saying that, what does he say? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Because Paul has to remind us that the debt was paid for, and it was paid for costly, by a very costly thing, by Christ himself paying for that. And this bought our freedom. And what happens in this moment, incredibly, is that Christ comes. He pays the debt in full. And it says later, that what it says here, in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells, and he puts to shame these, the, the, the spirits and the demons and sin and Satan. And what he's saying is, Christ pays this all. He pays the debt in full. And then not only does he pay the debt, when he says that Christ is God, the fullness of the deity bodily, and you are filled in him, this is incredible. He says that God literally comes in Christ. And then after he does what he does and sets us free, he doesn't just say, okay, I've paid the debt, now go and live your own way, because what's going to happen if you pay the credit card debt of a first-year university student? They're going to rack it up again, because that's what university students do. That's why Visa sets up a booth at Frosh Week. They know we're foolish. And so God doesn't do that, though. He doesn't say, I wiped it clean, now go and try better. No, what he does, he says, I wiped it clean, but now I, the fullness of God, have come and dwelled. I've taken you into me, it says, right? Literally says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of authority. Now, he not only comes and sets you free, but then he comes into you so that you can continue to live freely. Because without him, you cannot you cannot live better without God. So wiping out your debt isn't enough. It's not enough to just wipe out the debt. He must now make you somehow capable of resisting the debt or resisting the, the bondage that you'll want to heap back on yourself. And so this is why Hebrews and Paul will often speak of why Christian sinning is more tragic than a non-believer sinning. If you're a non-Christian in the room or listening, then you're a sinner. I'm sorry, that's what the Bible says. You don't have to believe it, but that, you're listening, so that's, that's a good sign. And you cannot help but sin, because you're a slave to it, and you obey your master. We all do. But when you're a Christian, what God says, he says, you know, I've cut loose the chains. You no longer have to obey that sinful nature. You don't have to go back. Imagine if you're in an abusive relationship, and you finally, and it's understandable, you're in that relationship, and it, you can almost imagine uh, it's impossible. How do I get away? I'm afraid for my life. I can't get away. Uh, or maybe it's codependency. If I leave this person, what am I? And you, Whatever reason, there's something sinful holding you in that, that abusive relationship. We can understand, and we can have pity and compassion on people and help them in that situation. But if they've then been set free from that, and there's a divorce, or there's a breakup, whatever it is, a separation, and then that person, what do they do? isn't so often they want to go back to it. I mean, I remember watching as a little guy when, the, and this may make all, some of you feel old, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989-90, uh, 
And when that came down, the very next day, there's people marching through Russia with signs of Lenin and Stalin on them. And you see, Russia, and I remember thinking, why would they want to go back to that? But the reason is, bondage is really appealing. There's something safe in it after a while. So if you're not a Christian, we can understand that God understands that it's, difficult, it's impossible for you to do good. But if you're a Christian, you see, here's why the Hebrew says, what is left for you if you go back after you, if you've heard about Christ? What is left for you? What else could atone for you if you rejected the only atonement? Because if you go back as a Christian and continue to sin, listen, we all do it. We all have hiccups. But when you go back, do you understand what you're doing is you're willfully, you don't have to go back, you're choosing to go back. And that is a greater, a greater sin in some ways, more tragic at least. At least that's what Hebrews seems to suggest. And so this passage here where Paul is hammering home what Christ has done is to tell you, friends, you're safe. All the lies, all the other stories, you've been set free from them. You need not believe any other story that comes to you about who you are and what you are to do unless it is Christ's story, the gospel. So he sets that. He anchors that home. And then he closes with this bit of freedom. That's verses 16 down to 23. And he says, Colossian church and redeemer, there's basically two stories out there that you are prone to believing and you don't need to believe them. And it's, it's good that he does this because it will open our eyes to things we're seeing today as well. And he says there are two things. And one of them is a, a story about bondage to shadows, and the other one is bondage to worldly wisdom. Okay? And I'll explain those two as we go. First one is to shadows. In verse 16, Paul is taking a direct attack on Judaism. When he says what he does, which is, let me pull it back up here. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are things that are Jewish. Paul knows, remember, when a church got planted in, in, in the book of Acts, the apostles went first into a city because gospel spreads faster in cities than it does in the country. You've heard me say before, the word pagan means country dweller because in the country, people are slow to adapt, which is why today, where are the Christians? In the country because they hang on for dear life. But in cities, things move quickly ideas spread quickly, the gospel spread quickly. Paul and the apostles go to cities, but where do they go first in the cities? Synagogues. So not only is that the most fruitful place to start converting Christian people to, be, to Christianity, but it's also where the attacks come from. So Paul here is directly addressing all of the issues that they find in, in Judaism that they're going to have to struggle with, which is food and drink laws, bacon and so on, uh, with regard to festivals, new moon, Psalm 81 verse 3 talks about the new moon festival, um, and then the Sabbath, which is a wonderful idea, thing to talk about. We, we don't have time. But what Paul's saying is this. All of these things, these are stories, and people are going to come to you, and they're going to say, hey, if you don't observe these things, are you even a Christian? Are you saved? Are you right with God? If you're not taking a Sabbath, if you're not eating right, if you're not doing, pick, a, pick an issue. And I know there's, this is a tight line here, right? But look at what Paul says. These are shadows. He says these are shadows, but the substance is Christ. So if these things are shadows, think of what a shadow is. A shadow is, I don't know what the technical term would be, but okay, with these lights, it's no good. There's a thousand shadows of me. But there'd be one shadow, which is a resemblance of me, but not entirely. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes whatever. But here's what I do know. If you are in a room waiting for someone and you see a shadow come in the door, do you start talking to the shadow? No, you start and you look for the person who's casting the shadow. And so Paul is saying, these things, the Sabbath, the, the laws, they're good. 
because the shadow of a good thing is still a good thing. However, they're shadows. Don't be confused. They're not the substance. They're meant to point to something that is real, right? And he says Christ is that reality. He's that real thing there. And so, sorry, got to keep up with my notes so I don't miss something here. And so he's saying all of these stories, when people come to you and say, are you looking after the Sabbath? Carl, you don't take a Sabbath. Are you sure you're even saved? Wrong. Okay, it's a nonsensical statement. It's good that we keep the Sabbath. It's good. However, you are not saved by your keeping of the Sabbath. You're saved by what Christ did in him alone. Therefore, any other condemnation that comes to me is irrelevant as regards my salvation. You may say I'm a bad Christian, but you cannot say I am not saved because of what I eat, drink, or otherwise, because then the assumption is, of course, you have made the shadow substance. You've taken something that's good and made it ultimate instead by accident. Not by accident, sometimes intentionally, but we do it quite naturally. And so Paul is hammering this idea. Don't fall for the shadows because the shadows are just that. And he goes on, right, at the end, the very last sentence, verse. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, I'll explain that word, and severity to the body, but they are, uh, sorry, are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul, you know, there's a reason skeptics and Christians alike today will say, this guy, Paul, must have been one of the most brilliant men to ever live. Because he says things, and it's like, oh my goodness, he knows. How does he know all this? How does he know it so well? He says this, there is necessarily no difference between the person who's addicted to food and the person who's addicted to health. That the indulgence that you have of an addiction to food, and you eat and you eat and you have no regard, you're a wrong relationship with food, is visibly, clearly not great. You can see the effects of overeating, right? That's visible. However, the assumption of the world is that the right response is then to turn the other way and become focused on your health. And Paul warns and says, be careful. Because asceticism, which is severity to the body, it means denying yourself something for the sake of getting right with God. If you think that your focus on health is good just because it makes you thinner and healthier physically, you're wrong. Because focus on health can be just as much an indulgence and an addiction as the focus on food. And Paul, again, there's so many examples. The man who is neglecting his family because of his work is not doing a good thing. It's obvious. But then the man who says, I'm going to fix it by focusing in my family is going to become everything to me is just as indulgent. He's still just taking that gratifying himself and not looking to Christ because they're both sins. And Paul says, no matter how much it looks like these things, but don't touch, you know, have a good Sabbath, right? Look after your Sabbath perfectly so you're writer, you're writer with God. Paul's saying it's, it's nonsense. It's not true. In fact, what happens? I, I can only speak for me. I'll tell you this. When, I am re- when my disciplines are really good, when I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm being the best husband ever, which is like for 30 seconds a, a year, when, when I'm doing that, you know what happens? I don't feel more humble. Boy, I'm proud. I'm like, can you believe how rotten the people are at this church? With me as their pastor, and they're still like this? You know, this is the, this is the sin that comes in. I don't literally say that. Um, well, maybe I do. I don't know. But you see, Paul is so right. He's saying these things, and it's so radical, because what he is saying is nothing, nothing, nothing affects your relationship with God except Christ, first and foremost. That is what makes you right with God. Your good behavior and your obedience is important, but it doesn't make you righter with God. 
Okay? And that is so radical. And there's even people thinking, Carl, are you just giving people license to sin now? Are you telling them it's okay to live anyway? Of course not. Of course not. Because if you actually are right with God, you're not going to want to take advantage of him. Grace, if it's grace is, when grace is received, it doesn't make you want to take advantage of grace, but to show gratitude for grace. And I can easily see the difference, at least I think, in my own flesh. When someone is saved, they're like, what can I do? How do I, how do I tell people about God? How do I serve him? How do I give more of myself? Not to get more of him, because I can't get more. He's already all mine. But how to do it? Because I'm so grateful. But then when there's others that say, I'm saved, now I'm going to go and continue to live, it's not going to work. See, then you're trying to be Jekyll. And Jekyll and Hyde, what the problem is, you try to honor both of them. So you think that there's a way, if you're going to take advantage of grace, that you can have God and pornography, God and greed, God and the addiction, God and the selfishness. And if you try to get both, you'll have none. But when you seek God alone, you have it. And we have this freedom. So Paul says, don't pay attention to these shadows. Okay? The shadows are shadows. Don't ever let them become substance. So when someone says, and listen, I've had people say this stuff to me as a pastor. I can use me as an example. Um, it's amazing how uh, subtle it is. If we don't have the church doing certain things, if we don't serve a certain community, if we don't have the right things on the walls, it's easy how people say, is this even the church? If you don't have this on the wall or that on the wall or this here and that here. And it's very difficult for Christians to say, I'm going to stay focused on the actual gospel and say those things are nice and important, but not ultimate. Right? And it's very hard. But we are called to do that. First, don't pay attention to the shadows. They are shadows and not substance. But then he talks about this bondage to worldly wisdom. Verses 20 and 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teaching? And this is worldly wisdom, human precepts and teaching. And the best example I can think of was well, many, but one of them is, is from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I'll, I'll outline this story a bit before we get to the quote because it's, it's a bit of a story. If you don't know the story, here's what happens. A man named Christian comes to the Bible and he's told the gospel and he realizes all of a sudden that he's a sinner. And this sinner is symbolized by that backpack. His burden, his sin is carried on him. And he is told, if you want to get rid of the burden that you have in your life, you must go to the celestial city, to the wicked gate, it's called. Go there, and Christ will remove your burden from you. But it's a long journey, it's perilous, so take care. And as he's on his journey, Christian, he stumbled all sorts of adventures and all sorts of side trails that try to detract him from, from getting to God. And one of them is he stumbles upon a guy named Worldly Wisdom, or the Worldly Wise Man. And he tells him, hey, I'm going to the celestial city to get this, back, this pack off my back. And worldly wise man says to him, no, you know what? I know where you're going. That's a terrible route. You're going to have all kinds of trouble. I have a much faster route. Just detract a little from going there and go instead to the city of morality. Because if you go to the city of morality, you'll meet my good friend named Legalist and his son, Civility. And those guys will show you that rather than take this long journey to get the, back, the pack off your back, Legality and civility will tell you the best way to do it is to just be good, be civil, love your wife, go back to your wife because he leaves his wife to run to this thing. Go back to your wife, enjoy your work, be a good citizen, and you're going to find the burden falls off. So this sounds pretty good to Christian. So he starts walking towards the city. But as he gets to the city of morality, he sees a massive t uh, mountain that looks like it's about to fall on him. And then he stumbles upon 
a man named Evangelist, who is the guy who first told him about Christ. And Evangelist rebukes him and lets him have it for, for being taken off the path. And here is what Evangelist says to him. He to whom thou wast sent for ease, being by name legality, is a son of the bondwoman who now is and is in bondage with her children, and, and is in a mystery this Mount Sinai which thou hast feared will fall on thy head. So that mountain he's seeing is the law, right? Mount Sinai. Um, on the head. Now, if she with her children are in, bond, are in bondage, how canst thou expect them to be made free? This legality, therefore, is not able to set thee free from thy burden. No man was as yet ever rid of his burden by him. No, nor ever is like to be. Ye cannot be justified by the works of the law, for by the deeds of the law are, sorry, no man living can be rid of his burden. Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is an alien, and Mr. Legality is a cheat. And for his son, civility, notwithstanding his simpering looks, he is but a hypocrite and cannot help thee. Believe me, there is nothing in all, the, all his noise that thou hast heard of these sottish men, but a design to beguile thee of thy salvation by turning thee from the way in which I had sent thee, set thee. And so what he's saying is exactly what Paul is saying. Listen to no storyteller, no narrative that tells you anything but Christ. There's lots of stories that will say, we talked about this last week, you're an oppressor, you're not an oppressor. You're white, you're black, conservative, liberal. There's all of these stories out there, and Paul's saying, believe none of them. You've been set free. If you believe them now, you're choosing to believe a lie instead of Christ. Before you had no choice, you were bound. But now you're free, Colossians. You don't need to believe them. Stay focused, Christ alone, which is why this sermon series is named Christ Alone. The problem, of course, is the reality. We slide, right? We slide into this bondman. We, we all fall back into sin. Maybe not habitual sin, but we sin continually. And if you're not somebody who falls back into a, a sin like alcoholism or gambling, let's have compassion because I assure you, you've fallen back into the sin of gossip or pride or any number of things. And so how do we fix this? How do we get to a spot where we can actually begin to resist these stories and grow in that freedom that we have? And the answer is, again, in the passage, surprise, surprise. Verse 15, Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So he is God. Him is Christ. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. This language Paul uses here is Roman. The Roman language is this. This is where he's getting this from. In Rome, when you won a war... There was no media. You couldn't just put it on, on Facebook or Instagram. So to show that you won, you would take, have a parade. You'd parade through the city. And in doing so, you would have the king and the spoils of that land that you destroyed and conquered and all of their people there. And, the, and oftentimes the king would be naked. He wouldn't be, have been allowed to shave or shower or clean up or anything. So he looks bedraggled. So do all the prisoners and all the splendor. Because what you're doing is you're triumphing over your enemy. You're shaming them. That's part of the victory process in Rome. And Paul says, this is actually what's happening on the cross. And here's the great irony. On the cross, the power of, I mean, the enemies, the, the religious leaders, Rome, the enemies of Christ, Satan, sin, all of it, they must have thought they were winning because they're putting him to shame. He's the one who's having his beard plucked out and the, and the crown of thorns on his head and the beatings. He's the one screaming out, it says in the Greek, like a woman. He cried out like a woman in labor when he cries out in pain. 
He must have been ashamed. That must have been the way the enemies felt. And yet what Paul says is, in the midst of that torturous scene, when he could do nothing for himself because he was nailed to the cross, kept there by your sin and his love, in that moment, he was actually triumphing over sin. And this is how we can begin to have freedom. When you and I begin to see that that picture is truer than the other ones that we see, the true picture of the cross is Christ triumphing over sin for you and in us as well. When he does that, if that becomes the primary image, then when someone comes and says, Carl, you know, you're not a Christian if, pick any number of things I do which are certainly unsavory to somebody, I can then say, gosh, you're a fool. I wouldn't say it directly to you. But that's what we think. We say, goodness, do you see how, when you, the more real the cross becomes, the more foolish the other stories begin to sound. And because you say, gosh, what are you saying? Do you think that I could possibly do more for me than Christ has done? Thank you for your criticism. Don't mind if I don't take it very well, right? And you accept, of course, the, you, know, you always accept criticism as best you can. But there's times when you say, you need to know what is the truth and what isn't. So if you're a Christian, you've been set free. And the goal now is this, how do you now begin living in it? How do you begin to spot the lies and begin to refute them and to push them out of your life and start walking rightly with God? How do you do that? That's what the goal of the Christian. If you're a non-Christian, you have to be set free. You, you have the same patterns, right? You fall into the same sin. You fall in the same bad habits, relationships, and so on. You want to be free from them, but the answer isn't a better guru, 12-step process, yoga, mindfulness, none of that stuff. The only answer, here's the irony, repentance. First, you need to accept that you are a fool. You've made a mistake, and you've wronged the king who deserved better. And if anyone in this room hasn't done that, I'm not sure if you're a Christian. Repentance is the first step of every Christian. You cannot know you need grace until you know you're a sinner. And the moment you know that the cross was true, you ought to repent. And so we repent. That's what's needed first. And then faith, begin to trust him. And if you believe that he did everything Paul says, that you are safely in his arms, then you, you can begin to live out that freedom well. There's much more to say, but that's all I'll say for now. Let's pray.